a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have the forbidden archaeologist, Michael Cremo. I uh, used to listen to this guy back on uh, Coast to Coast, man. I've loved this dude for years. This is such a fun episode to get to do. Uh, so he contests that humanity uh, is much, 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 much older than, um, I'm going to air quotes it, uh, mainstream uh, archaeology will have you believe, right? There's some evidence of censorship of that fact. There's some blatant disregard of that fact. Either way, uh, he has some incredibly compelling evidence and just an outstanding author as well, guys. So his books will be linked down in the show notes, Forbidden Archaeology, amongst others. Just go check those out, guys. Like I said, I've loved this guy for years. Also, if you are in the Sedona area, um, October 15th through 17th, he's going to be speaking at the Earth Origins uh, conference out there. So um, all the ways, of course, to find that also will be down in the show notes as well. Uh, If you want to find this show directly, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That'll be down in the show notes also. So other than that, guys, uh, let's get to this. I mean, we talk about how dinosaurs and humans probably hung out together and that actually we probably supersede humans by many millions of years it's awesome guys this is a wonderful conversation so without any further ado michael cremo the forbidden archaeologist All right, ladies and gentlemen, extremely special show, as always. Uh, We have on the great forbidden archaeologist. It is the great and powerful Michael Cremo. Michael, how are you today, buddy? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, Every day above ground's a great one. Thank you for asking. Uh, So I've been a fan of your work as I was fanboying out on you just a little bit here before we got rolling. Uh, Wife and I watched your 2017 Origins Conference talk again last night uh, and had a blast doing so, man. You're wearing that awesome skull shirt. It shows that you're here to party, but you also know some cool stuff uh, and you did an awesome job. So at, in fact, I'll go ahead and link that uh, in the show notes if folks just want to go check that out uh, after our conversation, of course. Uh, so you've done some incredible work in Forbidden Archaeology. I've been fascinated with UPAs, with the fact that humanity is much, much, much older than mainstream science wants to tell you, or mainstream archaeology, rather. Uh, so I'm really excited to get into this topic. And like I always promise my guest, I get the best. So uh, if you don't mind, my friend, just uh, let my audience know just a little bit about you, and then we'll get cracking, man. Well, as Brandon mentioned, I'm probably best well known for my book, Forbidden Archaeology, which documents many cases of archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. I mean, most scientists today would say humans like us first appeared between 200 and 300,000 years ago. But if you actually dig into the whole history of archaeology, you'll find a lot of reports by archaeologists, geologists, other scientists, finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints, many 
millions of years old, you know, far older than the two or 300,000 years that most scientists today for a human presence. But this evidence is missing from the textbooks. And that's why I call it forbidden, yeah, forbidden archaeology. So that's there. And I kind of got into this because of my involvement in the spiritual tradition of India uh, and some of the writings from the Sanskrit language of that ancient land tell of a human civilization, human populations going back vast periods of time on this planet. So I kind of wonder if there's some mythologies or perhaps some factual basis for it. And when I started digging into it, I found actually there's quite a bit of evidence for it. There is. And this is something, again, that's been on my radar for a long time. So I've been fascinated by this topic. Uh, and I also want to get into, to with you, uh, why the archaeologist versus the evidence. Like, why is there such dissonance and seemingly a cover-up going on, uh, which might allude to some deeper mysteries, right? So uh, what was it in the Vedic text that got you that, what was the first one you can remember, maybe, that said something about it, and then you researched it and were able to connect the dots? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was principally the Bhagavad Purana, or sometimes it's known as the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's one of many Puranas, but Purana means ancient or old, so it's kind of like the historical and cosmological writings of ancient India. And they describe a concept of time that goes in vast cycles, like Many ancient wisdom traditions had this idea of cyclical time. The Mayan calendar, for example, in the vast periods of time, the ancient Greeks and Romans believed there was a series of ages that repeated again and again and again. Uh, so, a similar concept is there in India, and it gives the links of these time periods these time cycles, they're called yugas. And by calculating that, I could see they were saying, okay, there was a human civilization living in the fourth yuga cycle of this period or that period, and I calculated it out. It'd be millions of years. So that was something completely different than anything I learned from my teachers in high school or professors in university. So that's, yeah, originally I thought, well, let me look into this. Maybe I'll find a few interesting facts. I'll write an eight-page pamphlet and go on to some other topic. Well, when I started the research, not looking in today's textbooks, but looking at the actual original reports by scientists, I began to find not just a few cases, but I read one. For example, I found a paper by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was a 19th century American geologist, who was the chief government geologist of California during the days when the California gold rush started in the mid-19th century, in the 1850s, 60s, around that period. And you know, he, was, he was writing in his scientific publications 
about miners finding human bones, human artifacts, you know, stone arrowheads, all kinds of things like that, in layers of rock that modern scientists tell us are millions of years old, about 50 million years old. So I thought that's really amazing. I'd never heard about this before. And then it'd be a little footnote, yeah. And he says, and Dr. Ribeiro in Portugal reported similar discoveries in Europe. So then I dig up that, you know, this, this, uh, dig up that old report and look at it. And sure enough, very detailed reports. Now, sometimes people say, well, in the 19th century, know. But if you look, at their reports, you find they were meticulous researchers. They would consider all kinds of possibilities. Maybe this slipped in from some higher level. Maybe there was some disturbance in the strata. Maybe somebody made a mistake. Uh, and they would consider all the kinds of skeptical doubts that would come up. But they still require, no, these things absolutely belong in the layers in which they're found, and they're millions of years old. So one report would lead to another, and I found my eight weeks of research expanded to eight months. Talk about expanding reality. You know, this, <laughs> you know, the eight months turned into eight years. Because there was just so much of this stuff, enough to fill up a 900-page book. So, Well, and I'm going to link that as well. Um, Forbidden Archaeology, guys, great book. I, I will go ahead and link that in the bottom of the show notes also. You know, and whenever people talk about things like the procession of the equinoxes and how the ancients figured out uh, that these things were on 24,000-year cycles, and of course, and we'll say probably mainstream archaeology quite a few times this evening, but uh, they're, you know, these long stretches of time and people say, oh, well, they could just look at that and then they could do the math, right? Well, maybe not, because there's a lot of physical evidence across the planet that you've done some phenomenal work on that prove that maybe they knew that because they were here for it. They could measure those things because it was like a blip on the radar as far as how old humanity actually is. Um, and so I'd like to go through, if you don't mind, just a couple of your uh, specific cases that you worked on. So sure. talk to us a little bit about from when you start asking the question, uh, how old is modern Homo sapien? Um. The way most scientists today would answer that question, they would say, anatomically, modern humans first came into existence between 200,000 and 300,000 years ago. So it's kind of interesting. When I first started doing the research for forbidden archaeology, it was a long time ago, you know, in the 1980s, early 1990s. At that time, they were thinking the oldest humans were less than 100,000 years old. Then by 2000, 2010, they were saying 200,000. They're moving in the right direction, but yeah. taking very tiny steps. <laughs> uh, I think they'll eventually get to it. But well, I agree with you. It. And they're taking tiny steps in contradiction to physical evidence. 
which again I want to get to in the in a little bit here, but um, that's just interesting to me that yes, they do keep moving that goalpost a little bit as you do, right? You know, because you start with a little bit of evidence, and then it kind of expands, and then of course you bring in things like Gobekli Tepe and established civilizations that have been around that double the age of the modern understanding, and we're talking about math well well beyond that. I dig that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, I mean, the current dominant idea was that the very first settled village life with agriculture started around 10,000 years ago, maximum. And, you know, bigger cities and civilization, so to speak, uh, started about six or 7,000 years ago. In Egypt and China, the Indus Valley, South Asia. Uh, so you're right, Gobekli Tepe kind of pushes it back. It does, and it's peanuts. About 13,000 years. Yeah, and it's peanuts. I mean, compared to the other stuff that you've looking in, looked into. So what about uh, the Habsburg UK footprints? Do you mind? I know you mentioned footprints earlier. Do you mind telling us about that? Well, those were some discoveries that were made just a few years ago, not maybe 2014, around that time, um, made by archaeologists in England. And they, were, they saw these footprints on some layers of rock that had been exposed by a storm on a beach in the eastern part of England. And they carefully studied these footprints, and they found, okay, they're in layers of sediment about 800,000 years old, between seven and 800,000 years old. And they carefully measured the footprints. There were a couple dozen footprints, and they measured them very meticulously. And then using you know, computer programs and statistical analysis, they compared the shape of the footprint with that of living populations of modern humans, like Eskimos, different North American Indian tribes. And they found that the foot structure of this creature that was walking around in England seven or 800,000 years ago was exactly like that of living anatomically modern humans. Now, what kind of conclusion can you draw from that? One conclusion, which I think is a valid one, and is the one I favor, is that can be taken as evidence that humans like us were walking around at that time. If humans like us had been around, they would have left footprints in the sand or mud that they were originally made in, they, anatomically modern humans would make footprints exactly like those found at Hoppiesburg. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. In England, in England they pronounce you know, the name of the town maybe a little differently, Hayburg or something. Yeah, I would, we don't. We've got a big following over there, so I'll reach out. Uh, listeners, uh, go ahead and submit us just an audio file on how that is supposed to sound. I think it's H-A-P-P-I-S-B-U-R-G-H. Hapisburg. Yeah. Hapisburg. Maybe they, they fluff out the H on the end there. We don't know. but Yeah, they do something. It's, 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 it's magic. not like I would pronounce it just looking at it. 
But uh, the point is, because that idea that I just gave, namely that the footprints were made by anatomically modern humans, because they are anatomically modern human in shape, is something that just doesn't fit with the current paradigm that's dominant in archaeology. So what do they do? They say, well, couldn't be humans like us, because everybody knows humans like us weren't around at that time. Who was around? Yeah, there was... Uh, Homo uh, antecessor? Isn't that yeah, what they were saying it was? But there, and like you rightfully pointed out, in that I specifically got this example from your presentation, is that particular Homo antecessor has uh, feet that kind of have you know, thumb-like toes on it. They're not in line and they're not just a little bit longer. So that's right. one of the points you were making. Now, uh, was this was this the specific example where they uh, removed the tags whenever they were doing um, cleanup in there? They were kind of refreshing the exhibit and then they removed the tags and changed it from, what was it? That's another one. It's a different that's, one. Okay. Those are the discoveries of Carlos Ribeiro yes. in Portugal. Yes. He was the chief government geologist of Portugal. And in the late 20th century, he found hundreds of stone tools in his country of Portugal and layers of rock that modern geologists consider to be about 20 million years old. They're from the early Miocene period. And he displayed them with labels indicating an early Miocene age of 20 million years in the Museum of Geology in Lisbon. And they were there on display for a long time until the next, you know, he died. And the next generation of officials in the museum said, we can't have this. This can't possibly be true. 20 million years maybe 20,000 years, that sounds about right for these things. So they wrote new labels for all the artifacts. They left them on display, but they wrote new labels, giving them more acceptable ages. And then the next generation of officials in the museum just put the entire collection away. This happened maybe in the 1940s, early 1950s. Shenanigans. And I went there, I kind of went to that museum, and I somehow or other got permission from the directors to get in there and look around, and maybe I'm the first researcher to see these things in over 50 years. But, yeah, that's, that's what that case about the switching that's pretty cool. Yes. And I was walking through your timeline on this because 20 million isn't even like, we're like, okay, that's ridiculously old. But we go back even further. We find evidence even further. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately it has to do with the idea that the universe has a purpose. It's like a schoolhouse where we can learn what our real nature is, what our real place in the cosmos is, if we choose to do that. And so, uh, in a school, they don't build a school and just hope that somehow or other the chemicals floating around in the hallways are going to combine together and turn into something that will be a student. Yeah, they build the school because they know there are students in the area that need education. They don't have any facilities, so let's build it. And right at the beginning, they're there, not after a million years, 
So um, this kind of gets beyond the stones and bones. You start getting involved in questions related to consciousness and things like that. Well, if you don't mind, let's let's explore those questions a little bit because uh, we are very spiritually grounded on this show as well. Uh, so, what would be one of those questions that you had in mind? Uh, as far as the know, evidence leading you to um, conscious uh, elements of consciousness, what correlation? Well, the evidence that I've documented in my books definitely whatever. If one takes it at all seriously, it's obvious that it contradicts the current theories of human origins. It's basically versions of the Darwinian evolution, evolutionary theory. Uh, so, actually, this didn't just occur to me. People would ask me after reading the book, okay, you've got this evidence that contradicts uh, the theories. How do you think humans came into existence? Um, what's your idea, your alternative? So that brought me to write a book called Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory, in which I answered that question. And I said, I started out by saying, before we ask the question, where did human beings come from? We should first of all ask the question, what is a human being? You know, we should know what it is we're trying to explain. Otherwise, how do we know if we've explained it or not? So today, many scientists will say that a human being or any other living thing is just a machine made of molecules in competition with other machines made of molecules for survival. And that's what we are. Now, I don't accept that because that leaves out the very important feature of consciousness, which we all have. I'm conscious, you're conscious, the people listening in or viewing us are conscious. Without consciousness, we wouldn't be having this discussion. So it's not a matter of belief. If I use the word soul, people think, okay, that's religious. That's but if I say conscious, oh, who can deny that? Mm -hmm. You're conscious. It's the most obvious fact of our existence. And it's not accounted for by standard science. They want to say that somehow or other, if you combine matter, molecules, in the brain in a sufficiently complex way, then somehow you get consciousness pop out of it. Um, they really don't accept that. And, and human devolution, I presented a, a lot of scientific evidence that kind of supports that idea, namely that consciousness has its own independent existence apart from matter. That's kind of how I went from stones and bones to consciousness and all of that. Well, I love it because you've you've found physical evidence and examples abound of this that then leads you to greater questions. And this is why I love exploring this topic with you, man, because I'm right there with you. I, I think that there is a huge spiritual component to this entire place. I think if you just want to go, like you said, scientific about it, consciousness is the great problem still as far as scientists are concerned, because there is a lot of conflicting physical and um, 
uh, firsthand witness accounts of consciousness being non-local to the body. You've got uh, near-death experiences where someone is cl- declared clinically dead uh, for like 30 minutes. And then doctor said, yep, no brain activity, nothing's going on. But then that person comes back to life or rejoins their body in this life and can explain things that happened long after they declared her dead. Uh, things that the doctor did dropped a specific pin on the ground. Uh, somebody came in yeah. and was wearing some, right? So there's all these things that they can occur that they should not know about. So there's tons of evidence, like you said, in that, that book as well. Guys, I'm going to link all of this stuff in the show notes, please go down and check this out and explore this. It is whimsical, uh, these ideas, because they really do open up a whole new world for you. They expand your reality, which is what we're all about here. So as far well, as... I, I think that uh, at least they should recognize there are alternatives. You know, uh, recently a science studies scholar wrote about me and my forbidden archaeology work. It was a book that was published in 2020 called Minority Report. And it's about how science, mainstream science, deals with minority views. In other words, views held by minority groups of scientists that contradict the now dominant theories. And, you know, he, he pointed out that sometimes the minority replaces the majority. Certainly happened with uh, Galileo, yep. Darwin, uh, other people, or uh, with Wegener and his idea about continental drift, which was rejected at first, and now practically every geologist accepts it. Yeah, Newton. Oh, yeah. Uh, so then that means you can't just dismiss a scientific claim simply because the majority of the authorities don't agree with it. If, if that was your approach, there'd be no progress in science whatsoever. But you, know, you look at the history of science, see it's happened many, many times. It may happen again. So. So that's, you know, he kind of included me as an example of someone in a minority who is proposing something different than the mainstream says. So um, I think this has huge implications for our whole educational system in countries that consider themselves democratic and are in favor of uh, representation, freedom of thought, means the government shouldn't give one group, the majority group of scientists, a monopoly in the education system and the scientific institutions. The, the minority view should also be represented. Uh, maybe like you have a biology textbook. So you can say, okay, today, most of the biologists accept the theory of evolution. So they get most of the textbook pages, most of the classroom time in biology. But because it is a fact that there are some scientists, biologists and others, who are proposing a different idea, they should be present also. They should be neutrally and objectively 
presented. And there are some scientists who disagreed for this reason, that reason, or some other reason. They'll let students make up their own mind about these things. Absolutely. And we're, we're starting to see this, and you have firsthand experience with this, with David Dem, Denning, uh, Deming over in um, Oklahoma City, the geologist that invited you to come speak. I mean, that was that was your shot at a minority well, that was at Norm, That was in Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma School of Geology. Yeah, and they invited you out to come speak, and even you you said in your presentation, the first thing you asked him is, why Why did you have me here? I mean, you know, that, like, I do stuff that's pretty counter to this, but he wanted to hear you out, and do you mind just telling us about that? Well, yeah, I was kind of wondering, this uh, professor of geology at the University of Oklahoma, Norman, was, uh, by all appearances, you know, he was... Uh, a full professor, he was publishing papers in all kinds of scientific journals, writing textbooks, uh, totally established in his field. And I got a letter from him saying, you know, I'd like to invite you to address uh, our department. Uh, geology school is a big place, oil state like Oklahoma. You know, it's got a big presence on the campus. I went there and I did that. And afterwards, he invited me to dinner with his wife. And, you know, I kind of asked him, why you invite me here to speak as part of uh, the Shell Oil Colloquium? You know, in other words, I paid my way there and everything. Why did you do that? And he said, well, I heard you on Coast to Coast, you know, which is one of, the, uh, one of the many channels that are putting out alternative information in different fields of study. So you never know who's listening to this broadcast that we're doing now, this podcast. You never know who's listening and how they'll be influenced. So I, I just found it amazing. You know, this professor who looked in, in every other way, totally orthodox, was at midnight listening to uh, an alternative radio talk show and heard me on it and became interested. You know, so, that's that's when I became a fan of yours. That's how I found out about you was Coast to Coast. And my wife and I um, will uh, listen to that. We we live in North Texas. My folks live in Houston. So we drive back a few times a year. So that's a five-hour trip, five-hour back. So on those drives, though, we listen to Coast to Coast. That's like our thing. You know, it's our road trip mix. And we listen to you on one of them. And uh, I was just blown away, man. And so we've been doing this for years. So Coast to Coast has been a part of my wife and I's relationship for years. So, yeah, it's very cool. So, like you said, though, you never know who's listening, man. You never know how it'll resonate with somebody. And how big of him to at least bring you on, how was your, your talk received from other other people in the audience? Uh, that was a fairly good event. I would say most times the audiences are respectful to listen. Maybe in one lecture out of a hundred, there'll be some fanatic there who will, you know, 
scream and yell at me or something. You know, there have been a few cases where I've been scheduled to give lectures at different universities or institutions, and it'll be canceled. You know, they talk about cancel culture. It was happening to me years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of a re- re- recent thing. But, um, um, like, once I was in, my books are published in a lot of different languages. One of them is Russian. So I've been to Russia a few times. I'd spoken at universities there. No problem. But at one university, there was a problem. Some professors that invited me to speak about forbidden archaeology, that topic, and some other professors found out about it. And so they went to the head of the university and convinced them to cancel the lecture. So the, the president, yeah, he canceled the lecture. So the professors who invited me, they went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences and they spoke to the director of that institution, and he said, okay, if they won't let him speak at the university, he can speak at the Russian Academy of Science auditorium here. So they had buses bring students and professors from the university, and you know, they say more, more people came, and you know, the professors who invited me, they said more people came than would have come if we held it at the university. Because everybody was wondering, what's what's this man going to say that's so dangerous that his lecture was canceled? <laughs> this is my favorite part about this story, is that, yeah, you had way more people come in because now you have street cred, right? They put the equivalent of a, like a parental warning sticker on your uh, presentation and wouldn't let you do it. So they, they bring you over to this Academy of Sciences, and that's brilliant, man. And you just blew up. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. But, you know, if I didn't get forbidden from time to time. I really couldn't call my topic forbidden archaeology. I'm going to call you the archaeological the, gangster. That's what you are, sir. Yeah. Anarchist. There you go. <laughs> well, man, um, so if you don't mind, dude, let's let's talk about, so I've heard you talk about whenever you speak about moving the age back and folks um, seeing, you know, archaeologists seeing evidence, but they're battling the evidence like tooth and nail i mean fighting it uh do you think that this has to do with pride or do you think that there's a bigger uh i'll put it i'll say conspiracy going on to um make us think that this is the way that humanity has been that there's no other explanations um and but there's a lot of knowledge filtration as you put it um i love that term by the way it makes so much sense that that is what's going on they're like okay we're going to give you some knowledge but it's what we want you to know I mean, you see this throughout history with the Gnostic Gospels, you know, not the full stories there. They yank some of it out and you only get this bit. Uh, But this is what's interesting about this. Now, I've heard stories of, and these are just rumors, maybe you can verify some of them, of like the Smithsonian finding things and then dumping them over a boat in the ocean so that things wouldn't get discovered. I mean, how do you think that there's any validity to that? Well, uh, there may be in this sense. Yeah, of course, one would have to document these things. I'll tell you about a case that I do know about. Um, there's a site in Southern California called Calico. It's located in the Anza Borrego Desert between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. If you're kind of going in that highway between LA and Las Vegas, you're about halfway through it, 
yeah, there's a little turnoff to some uh, Bureau of Land Management property, in other words, government land, where there's this excavation that was uh, done at this place called Calico starting in the 1960s. There was a, an American geologist, a woman named Dee Simpson, who began the excavations there. And she got Louis Leakey, one of the world's most private, famous uh, archaeologists, to come and uh, investigate the site with her. And they determined, both of them, that there were stone tools and weapons there over 300,000 years old. And for North America, that's extremely anomalous because the standard theory is that there are no human beings in North America until these Siberian tribes kind of wander over the Bering Strait land bridge. And they believe around 20,000 years ago, there was a, a bridge of land between Siberia and Alaska. And these tribes just kind of wandered into Alaska and then down south into what's now the United States and Mexico and South America. And that all happened less than 20,000 years ago, to, according to the textbooks today. And to have evidence for a human presence going back 300,000 years, that was just too much. But they collected thousands of artifacts, and they put them in the San Bernardino County Museum, and they've been, they were kept there. But after Dee Simpson died some years ago, you know, they had a new director of the project, and, and they were kind of opposed. You know, the new management was kind of opposed. And even though these things, these artifacts, had been you know, deposited in a federal, federally licensed repository of this museum, they threw out half of them. Like in that dumpster? Yeah. No way. See, it's things no, like it, this. I mean, it's, it, it alludes to a deliberate cover-up. Like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't them as operators of a museum i mean it i don't know if this is just a day job for those people if they're just an hourly worker or something but i would think you'd have a little bit of investment in the, the preservation of history and well knowledge. you know some of them they may not be thinking that they're taking evidence that's valid and to protect their theories they're going to throw it away they may think i'm just being a responsible scientist you know, we've got limited space here. These artifacts, so-called, are just broken pieces of stone that these fools out there, like Louis Leakey and Dee Simpson, uh, have mistaken to be human artifacts. It's, so, it's, so although there are cases I think, of deliberate conspiracy. Oftentimes, it's not like that. The scientists involved in it don't think that they're being anything other than uh, a good scientist doing what good scientists do. That's, that's their mentality. But the effect is 
just the same as if it uh, were a deliberate conspiracy. In other words, we don't wind up with a complete set of facts to use in our attempts to answer different questions about our human history. So, yeah, there are some examples like that. And to the larger question about motives behind it, well, it can be personal. It can be a matter of pride. It can be a matter of uh, them loving their theories and loving the evidence that supports it. And somebody, like if you love somebody, someone says some bad thing about the person you love, you don't want to believe it. You may become angry at the person who says it. So there's that help. But I think uh, there's the knowledge filtering aspect of it, which can include, but is not limited to, you know, direct, deceptive, fraudulent manipulation or destructive evidence. That, that does happen. But it doesn't necessarily happen in every single case. You have to document each case. So, uh, but I think the underlying motive is to uh, preserve the basic materialist paradigm. Because they understand that if there's anything that disturbs that, then eventually you're going to get to this point where people start questioning, well, what about consciousness? What about this? What about that? Maybe we need to reform our worldview. Yeah, we have an example of this, the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't get me started <laughs> on that. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's just how you use it, right? I mean, like anything, but I think something that spread a lot more knowledge than probably those that would want to retain, like you said, this model, uh, they probably didn't think of the internet as something that would possibly bring some of these ideas to way more light than they want. Um, so, okay. So as to the nefarious action of it, um, it, it seems interesting to me that whenever you do hear stories of like this, and you're absolutely right, not in a hundred percent of the cases, I, I like the perspective and that's, you're keeping us honest and I appreciate that about looking at it, that not all everything that's thrown away, it's just when it correlates with the death of the person that found it, um, and then verified it with also, like you said, one of the most famous, um, archeologists on the planet confirming this, then, uh, it's just interesting, the timing of all of it, you know what I mean? And then the, this guy just happens to come in and then throw all this stuff away but and and even the changing the names on the tags like in your previous example with those stone tools it, it, mm -hmm. it just like you said it just it doesn't sit right with us man because there is a lot here to discover um so i wanted to ask you though about what are your thoughts on uh the concept of tataria and the mud flood have you dove into any of that uh i'm not all that familiar with that topic you have to explain it to me really oh man isn't i get to explain this to the forbidden archaeologist so uh the mud flood is basically i don't know everything i don't claim to know everything <laughs> no this is this is great i, I often is... I, I that's why i like shows like this i often learn things from the hosts or guests who call in yeah, yeah, go ahead. Like I said, it's an honor. I'm just fanboyed out a little bit here because, again, I've been listening to you on Coast to Coast for years. Okay, so uh, the mud flood was a concept that um, was arisen out of a lot of evidence being found of buried 
structures underneath structures. So what they would do in one example would be uh, that they would be digging out a street to put a new gutter in and they would go down where a building was already at in a busy part of San Francisco, let's say. But underneath the ground, there was more structure, not a basement. I've seen that. I've seen I've seen those pictures. Well, what yeah, they but... what they allude to and there's a lot having to do with the World's Fair uh, buildings um, and then mm-hmm. them being destroyed, um, that that being a very nefarious thing, that that's not really what happened, that they were from an ancient civilization that was high technology that was wiped out by a cataclysm um, of some kind, maybe a war, maybe just something natural. Uh, certain people went underground, and then when they emerged, we have the new timeline that we have now. Um, some say that it was an age of enlightenment with free Tesla-type technology, wireless electricity everywhere, a high technologically advanced culture that was wiped out seemingly overnight. They also allude to some t- missing time in there that they pull out basically the story of these people about a thousand years the dark ages were inserted to kind of you know as a place marker on what could explain this stuff now there's other examples like the something called the foundlings which was where they shipped orphans on trains from the east coast over to the west coast and people would just pick up kids um, to go work on their farm and adopt them but it was hundreds of thousands of mis- like children orphans mm-hmm. where did you get a population like that you know maybe from an ancient advanced society this also kind of coincides with uh, the beginnings of the industrial revolution which is of course when the institutional education system was rolled out to make you factory workers and not question. So that's a good time to kind of, um, I don't know, not let kids remember their true history and to train them into a new one. Because if you think of it like a conquering force that wants to take out the idea of unmetered electricity for their own nefarious gains, then yeah, you would want to remove that information. Um, And also if they were the victors in a sense, uh, because they clearly came out on top of whatever civilization that was, the victors are the ones that get to tell the story. So they just tell you that this is the way history is and this is the way things have always been, but then hide this potentially great ancient civilization that's not that old. I mean, that went back very far, but it's not that far out of our history. It's an interesting concept. And they they say this, though, with the mud flood, it kind of correlates to this Tataria idea. Uh, And there's old globes and old maps with Tataria written on them. Um, It's this whole thing. It was a global civilization. It's wild. I didn't know if in your work you'd come across something like that. I mean, this may explain some of this. You know, this may be, like I said, I mean, if there's a force that came over and took some, if let's say we have like what uh, uh, Graham Hancock and um, uh, Randall Carlson talk about with the Unger Dryas, with the giant impact theory being a potential answer for what may have wiped out a good part of the civilization, to that to that idea, if you had some huge civilization that was millions of years old, potentially global, right? And we know this with architecture and similarities and cultural thinking across the world, right? Uh, that civilization probably was pretty damn connected. Um, but then whenever you look at the idea of um, a civilization like that being wiped down to nothing, to where even some speculate that it's like 1,500 people out of the whole global population survived somehow. So if you do that, though, I've used this example on here. Um, You know, if something like that were to happen today, I don't know how to make a cell phone. Cell phones are done. You know, we just don't have those anymore. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can't build a car uh, from scratch. Um, Now we don't do that, right? So unless you have people that have retained that knowledge and that skill set, then you lose all of that. It's wiped wiped off the consciousness. Right. I don't know, man. Alternative history, bro. I love it. I love this stuff. So now Tatar has a new mud, um, a new, I was going to say mud flood hole for you to go down, but a rabbit hole for you to, to look into. It's pretty cool. I'll send you yeah. some stuff. 
Well, like I said, pe uh, people have sent me links showing the pictures, but I, I guess I didn't pursue it enough to get to the mud flood part of the theory. I'll, I'll see I just thought pictures. they were talking about they they built buildings on top of other buildings that looked similar. Yes. Well, yes. Or that that was the full building. Something came in, flooded it, flooded out the bottom oh. couple of floors. Because if you think about it, and what's interesting about what they find down there oh, is it's I not, see what you mean. Yeah, okay. it's not a basement. It's It's got facade. It's got doors, windows. Uh, they did an ornate carvings, uh, lanterns and stuff on the outside of it. So it was meant to be above ground. But for some reason, something happened, and it seems to have happened globally, um, where it basically buries, and then they just put a street there and then make new doors and windows for the bottom floor. And these, these structures, from what I recall, they're mostly from the 19th century, late yes. 19th century. Yes. And like, you look at these huge city hall buildings, you know, all these buildings, some of them look pretty damn out of place. And they say that they were built in the 1800s by some, you know, farmers, you know, in between them doing that, but the craftsmanship, and you look at like the cathedrals and things like this over in Europe, there, there's just this high architecture and people are saying, well, how the hell could they do that in the dark ages when all they were trying to do is survive and not get killed by uh, the crusades? You know what I mean? So it's, there, there's some interesting correlations between ancient architecture, and it's global, by the way. You can find this in San Francisco. You can find this in Kansas. Like, there's all these interesting out-of-place um, uh, architecture. Architectural. Yes, type structures that don't make any damn sense. It's pretty interesting, man. Like I said, I will send you some stuff. Um, that was a cool moment for me to get to tell you that. So, uh, but let's talk about... Um, what do you think the next step is for this? Do you think that more people are going to come online uh, and look more seriously at the evidence found that pushes humanity back? Or do you think that we're going to retain this rigid uh, censorship or this uh, knowledge filtration system? Well, I can't mention any names for obvious reasons, but <laughs> I do get letters from graduate students and other students, undergraduate students of archaeology, who are fascinated by the book in archaeology. And I think they have a lot of potential if they play their cards right. <laughs> because basically, I'm approaching this issue as an historian. You know, I'm not a field archaeologist. I don't have a PhD in archaeology. All I can do, which I think I'm pretty successfully, is just point out that if you look at the actual discoveries that have been made, they add up to something that suggests humans have been around for a lot longer than most people think. You know? So, what these students can do if they go ahead and get their proper credentials and are able to conduct their own excavations, they will be able to push things from, I think, inside in a proper direction. So that's a, 
I don't even know if I should have said that much. No, but. I I love it. And you said something that I really want to I don't want to skip over here. Um so the fact that you're not a PhD um archaeologist is why I dig your work and find it very very valid. It's the credential doesn't impress me. In fact, I I've I've had uh, Ruth Mendelson on uh, recently. She's a composer and she's self-taught musician. Now we had talked about the difference between classically trained and theater theory type musicians that read music and those that don't. Now you have a ton of creativity. You've got alternate ideas. The ones that don't read music, but the ones that do have a very rigid box within that they have to operate or they're, that they're wired to operate based on their training, right? So if you if you look at it in that perspective, now you've you've got great value in both, right? Um, but there's one that's a little bit more creative and artistic, uh, the self-taught or like you, the independent researcher that takes the evidence of digs and finds, but you're able to glance at it with a new set of eyes that aren't blinded you know, or like blinders on from your training because you you might dismiss evidence just based on the fact that it's out of place, right? It doesn't fit in. So the fact that that's not, you just follow the evidence as it is. And we've already spoken about this evening, um, archaeologists versus the evidence, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are, there are philosophers of science who say exactly what you just said. One that I like in particular is Paul Feyerabend. He was a German, born in Germany, but he came to the United States in the 60s was a professor of philosophy and science at the uh, University of California at Berkeley. Uh, yeah, so he, he, he had this idea that you can't really judge a science unless you take an outside perspective. 100 you, know, you have to step out of the circle so to speak you have to take an honest look at it and that alternate perspective he said it may be some something from some ancient wisdom tradition it may be something else but he, he was really speaking like that addressing that issue and i think that's uh, exactly what what i've done i've taken a a, a different a different look at the evidence from the standpoint of another perspective. And I think that's very useful. And to look at things from different angles of vision, you get a, a better picture of what the real story is about it. Absolutely. Could not agree more. This is why I value that perspective. So thank you again for what you do, man. And no, I've thought a lot about this. I've thought I did never go, oh, what, what does Michael Cremo know? He didn't have a PhD. Never crossed my mind. I'm telling you. Uh, in fact, it may, like I just said, uh, been more attractive that you didn't because of your perspective and that really, man, you do some phenomenal research. Again, guys, I will link all the ways to find him down in the show notes. Please click down there and check him out. Uh, so let me ask you something. Um, humans, dinosaurs, did we hang out together? Well, I, if we look at all the evidence, it appears that human beings existed before the time of the dinosaurs, during the time of the dinosaurs, after the time of the dinosaurs. Represent. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, one category of such evidence is footprints discovered by, in many cases, scientists who are part of what's called Christian creationism, biblical creationism. And I was aware of some of these discoveries when I was writing Forbidden Archaeology, 
but I didn't include them in the book for, I mean, one reason was is that uh, one of the original discoverers of these human footprints next to dinosaur footprints at a place called Biloxi uh, River site near Glen Rose, Texas. He had originally claimed that they were genuine footprints, but later he changed his mind. His name was Henry Morris. So he changed his mind about his own discoveries and he wrote a letter to Nature, which is a big scientific journal, kind of withdrawing his claims. So because of that reason, I said, okay, this is, I'll keep, keep my eye on this, but it's, you know, the, the original discoverer has just renounced it, renounced it. So I have too many questions about it to include it in the book. Yeah, right before that, they saw a black sedan pull up at his house. And then, uh, this, then miraculously, he wants to change his story, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Glen Rose is just down the street from me. My wife and I took my nephew there a few months back. Uh, it's great. Oh, you really? go, yeah, you can swim in the river. You walk in the dinosaur footprints and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. If you're ever out this way, man, let me know. We'll drive down there. It's really cool. We, should, we definitely should. Yeah, so then what happened was I got a letter from one of these students, graduate student of archaeology from Texas, the University of Texas. Not going to give the name, but uh, and so I've been reading Forbidden Archaeology. This student wrote to me, and I just want to know: is there anything I can do to help you with your research? So I said, "Yeah, you can. There, there is something you could do if you've got the time to do it. I'd like you to go to Biloxi River and have a look at those footprints and tell me what you think. Just give me your unbiased opinion. Now, what you think those things are. So this graduate student of archaeology went to the Oxy River and participated in some new excavations of, of uh, footprints there, which was present when uh, some new footprints were uncovered. You know, they were stripping away these layers of rock from the riverbed, and they came upon a layer with footprints. And I asked you, tell me what you think of those footprints. Yeah, are they, do you think they're credible? Or, or are they just patterns in the rock or something that happen to resemble a footprint? So you study them very carefully. Sorry, well, I, I, as far as I can see, yeah, there's, they're real footprints. And they are next to the dinosaur footprints. So on that basis, I decided, okay, I should include these. Otherwise, I'm just kind of knowledge broker myself. So, um, yeah, in my next book, which hopefully will be out later this year, I'll include that case. You should, because, I mean, and now now I just want to know what the adventures were like, because you know that we probably domesticated or interacted with them on some level, uh, intimately, because look at what we do to every animal on the planet. People own tigers. They have them in their backyard. They probably shouldn't, but they do. And if you could think about what we do with pack animals and things like that, I could just picture those 
people walking around through Glen Rose, through what would be Glen Rose, Texas in millions of years with like a little, you know, harness on this damn thing or something, you know, or maybe they just hang out. Maybe they're buddies. I, I think the idea is amazing. I love the concept of uh, humans interacting with ancient creatures like that. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And then from Texas, there was the Texas wall. Are uh, you talking about uh, Round Rock? Yeah, I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, we've had a lot of cool stuff happen. The Aurora UFO case happened out in East Texas, and then we have uh, Round Rocks and Interest, or Rockwall, that's the name of the town, is named Rockwall. after the Rockwall. that's the place. Yeah, yeah, it's up here as well, just a few hours down the road. We've we've got so many things to do when you come to Texas, man. Let's go do that. Yeah, yeah, Rockwall is another case. That's from the Cretaceous period, which is the age of dinosaurs. So maybe that was the fort to keep the dinosaurs out. Yeah, there, it was like a little yard, right? Or it's <laughs> or, like a little pin, like a kennel for their brontosaurus. Oh, oh <laughs> it could be. That's, that's the other possibility. Yeah. It was their yeah. backyard. We can't let the stegosaurus get out. He bothers the neighbor's plants, you know, um, kind of a thing. Uh, well, look, Michael Cremo, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. This has been unbelievable. Like, truly a dream come true, man. You're wonderful, you're a sweetheart, and you're incredibly knowledgeable. I love your perspective. I will, of course, link all of the ways to find you down in the show notes. Uh, was there anything else that you had on your mind before we close out? Well, uh, you know, after, you know, I'm going to be starting to travel and do public lectures again. And... October 12th to the 15th, I'm going to be at the Earth Origins uh, 2021 conference in Sedona, Arizona, which is really a magical place. If you've never been there, Red Rock Canyon. Yes, it's gorgeous. So beautiful. And so we'll we'll see. Uh, But it's, uh, it'll be one of my first public in-person presentations since this whole COVID thing started. So You're going to crush it like you always do. Good, good to be back in the saddle, as they say. Well, it's good to have you back, man. That is so cool. Like I said, you, you make your way out on, on this way. Uh, please give me a holler. Don't be a stranger. But uh, my friend, you forbidden archaeologist, Archaeologist. I'm going to call you the um, archaeological gangster, too. I'm going to add that one to the names people call you because I think it's apt and I think it's awesome. So, uh, Michael Cremo, I can't thank you enough, dude. Thanks so much, man. This was great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, Brandon. And thanks to all your listeners and viewers for tuning in. Just wanted to send thanks and a huge shout out for Michael Cremo, the forbidden archaeologist coming on the show with this. Uh, such a cool topic. I mean, do some research into this, guys. Definitely pick up his book, Forbidden Archaeology. It's linked down in the show notes. Uh, I'll make it the first one. Just go grab that thing. It is a lot of fun and fascinating. Very, very interesting. Uh, on your you know, exploratory journey of what the hell's going on here, of expanding your reality, you might as well um, realize that the archaeological institutions um, are wrong as well. So, you know, just add that add that to the knowledge base there. So, um, as far as this show goes, guys, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. Um, links in the show notes, uh, links on the website to all of the socials and every other way we can be found. Um, the music that you're hearing right now, guys, this incredible music is by my good friend Vinny the Saint. Check out these show notes for his link as well. Uh, he makes some awesome music, guys, so just go check that out. Super grateful, Vinny. Thank Thank you so much, brother. Uh, go out into your world this week. Explore Michael Cremo's concepts of the Earth and humanity being super, super.
super old and how awesome that is uh, as well as just pick up a piece of litter um, you know be nice to every animal human being everybody that you see that you come across uh, open doors you know buy somebody coffee or a meal or a bottle of water something simple um, get out of the left hand lane of course because that's a huge pain in the ass you'll all know that and if you don't just that's a realization you have now move um, other than that guys go out into this incredible place still undefeated and full of mysteries um, and just be good to one another thank y'all so much for listening we'll see you next time